Okay, let's go ahead and come together. Find your seat, find a Bible or an electronic device on which you have a Bible. I promise you are going to need it today. Do your finger exercises because we're going to be turning all over the place or you're going to be using your thumbs on that device. But we have a lot to cover today. But before we get started, I just want to thank you um, on behalf of uh, the leadership here at Village for so many of you who helped with Living Nativity all week, uh, setting up, doing all kinds of fun construction and putting things together, turning our gym into ancient Bethlehem. And then thank you for so many of you who were here uh, yesterday for hours and hours and hours doing various things, pretending to be Bible characters, getting food ready, serving our guests, um, setting up, tearing down. For all of you who have done that, thank you so much. Uh, I heard 430-ish people yesterday coming through on day one. And so tonight is day two, uh, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And so we look forward to another day. Please keep praying. Um, The gospel is presented clearly. That's the plan, we hope, at the end of every tour. Um, And so so much of what you see as you go through is meant to reinforce and remind of this story at Christmas time. Um, we, I think we can. I think I can say this. We can. We could use some more help tonight. If you'd like to throw on a costume and pretend you're uh, an ancient Jew, that would be fantastic. Uh, if you could come and join us. Uh, but even if you're just coming for the tour, invite friends and family um, on Facebook, um, or I think you can like tell somebody with your voice. Um, you can do that as well. Uh, so we're looking forward to um, another good day today and for um, the good news of great joy that will be for all peoples to be heard by hundreds more tonight. Um, we are going to talk today about Christmas. What? Um, in a way, I hope that briefly touches on a multiplicity of prophecies um, that foretold the one who was to come. Um, So you may have heard these things at various times, um, maybe one at a time in a sermon or two at a time, but we're going to try to cram in a few dozen. So we don't have Sunday school today, so really, you're not going to be hungry for an hour and 45 minutes, so... I, I told, I wasn't going to say this, but now I am. I told um, people yesterday at Living Nativity, this is my favorite sermon of the year because um, it's the one that Pastor Ron is most likely to sleep through because he's so tired <laughs> uh, from all that's going on with Living Nativity, which is why I'm preaching this Sunday, so he can work on all of that. Um, but honestly, this is a really exciting uh, sermon because uh, we've just finished the book of Esther, um, which is at the end of the Old Testament um, timeline. We're celebrating Christmas, which opens the New Testament, and we're in between series, and next week is our Christmas celebration service, where we sing a bunch of extra songs, there's family here, um, and Pastor Ron is going to talk about adoring the King, and so today I want to kind of prep us for that by looking at the portrait of the Messiah, the portrait of the Messiah, and I entitled the sermon, Long Expected, taken from A Christmas Carol. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And I just thought that we'd, we'd think about this at the beginning. What have you 
in your life, so you folks that are a little bit older um, have more examples of this, but even uh, younger ones, think of something you've waited for, for more than like a day. Or maybe think like a week or months or years. What are some of the things you've waited for, longed for, expected? Children. Okay, yes. Marriage. Longing for, waiting for, praying for, hoping for. Retirement. I thought that came from a 20-year-old at first, and I was like, ah! It's going to be a rough few decades. (laughs) What else? New homes. What's that? Healing. Longing for healing, yes. Children to grow up. That's good. Don't nudge. Stop. All right. Some winking happening right now. Furiously writing that down. Did you hear Jack? Anything else? Promotions. Or maybe just the job. These are all examples of things that affect us deeply because they matter. They matter to us in many different ways. When we think about how long we've waited for things, we think about things we're still waiting for. There's a promise that some of that will come soonish. And then there is the promise that that will never come in this life. But praise God, this life is not all there is. And that's part of what we're celebrating at Christmas. When we look at the Bible, we're seeing a story of longing and waiting, of expectation. And so what I want to do is tell the story of the Bible today. (laughs) For the express purpose of trying to feel what the people in the story of Christmas in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2, what were they feeling? What were they thinking? What were they expecting? What were they waiting for? What were they longing for? Because Christmas is so familiar that sometimes we forget this. It's just hard, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. We know the story. We've heard the story. We've watched the story in many different forms. We've listened to the story. And so I want to have us hear it again and think about all the promises that God, not all, some, (laughs) some of the promises that God made for a Messiah, for one who was to come. And so to do that, we need to pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the story that it tells. We thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you that the story of Jesus coming to earth is so much better than any of the stories that we're experiencing this Christmas. Even those ones that we we love for Rudolph and Frosty, Lord, for for Santa, for, for all these good stories, Lord, we thank you for a better one for the best one. And so this morning we ask that you would help us to see with new eyes, with renewed eyes, 
how you promised for a savior, how you delivered on that promise. And in the backs of our minds, we think of the promise that Jesus made to come again, that he is even now preparing a place for us. And as we long for that, as we wait for that, may we identify with your people across the millennia who have waited and longed for what you have promised. Lord, none of your promises fall to the ground. But many of them are long-term promises. So give us long-term faith to see that you will keep your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know where to tell you to turn because we're going to be all over the place today. But maybe it might be good to start in Matthew chapter 1 and just take a look there. Um, There's going to be so much scripture uh, that I gave you a bunch of white space in your notes to write some of it down. But we want to explore and think about what the Messiah, what the promised one was to do, to be, what he was going to sound like, look like, achieve. It's almost like we're reporters asking who, what, when, where, why, and how as we look at the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1, no doubt many of you meditate on these these verses day after day after day. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father, right? Those are just ingrained in your memorization. All those names that are so much... Skip. Right? How many of you have done that? Come on. Let's be honest. You can be honest here. Wow, we have a lot of liars, I think, in this room. <laughs> I raised both my hands for that. Here comes another genealogy. Woo! Let's turn the page. For the Jewish people, the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke are incredibly important because they tell a story because names trigger stories and thoughts and ideas and promises. And maybe if we knew our Bibles better, these names would trigger those stories in our minds and we would see a genealogy for more than just a list of boring names that we have a hard time pronouncing. Aren't you grateful for apps that you can just hit the audio for some of those things, right? And then that guy says the words and you don't have to. As we see the genealogies telling us who was the father of whom and whom and whom and whom and whom and whom and whom, it all leads to Jesus, and that's the point. The point is that it all leads to Jesus. In Matthew's genealogy, we start with Abraham. Abraham was the first Jew, the father of the Jews. In fact, the book opens by by identifying two of the greatest Jews with Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Matthew chooses to highlight Jesus' connection to the two of the two of the greatest Jewish men, David and Abraham. And so the story begins in our minds. If you go to Luke chapter three, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. So if Luke wrote his after Matthew, you can kind of see Luke snickering. <laughs> I'm going all the way back, Matthew. Okay, one up in him. And so we think of the story. And so if you'll allow me, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we have our first characters. And the story is told primarily through characters. Adam and Eve are created by God in a garden. They're innocent. They're sinless. They walk 
with God. And yet, even in that peaceful place, Satan gets in. Eve is deceived. Adam joins her. And humanity is plunged into darkness, sin, and death. And yet, even in that, we see God's grace. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And in the day that they ate of it, they lived. They were going to die. But God, in his mercy, allowed them to live out the rest of their lives. And even in the beginning, we see hope. The hope is quickly shattered, though, when Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, kills his brother Abel. And tragedy strikes Again, we're led into the story of Noah, who is at the end of a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. The father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. Noah's name, by the way, means rest. And as his father was, was looking, saying, oh, maybe this one will give us rest. And instead, God, looking at his creation, sees the great sin and it, he wipes out humanity rescuing Noah and his family on a boat. The next significant story is the Tower of Babel, where the peoples are told to spread, multiply, fill the earth. Instead, they stay close, and they try to build a name for themselves as they build a building into the heavens, and God comes down and scatters them by changing their languages. And then we're introduced to Abraham, and his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. And his son, Joseph, who leads, in a way, the children of Israel from Canaan, the promised land, into Egypt, where eventually they're enslaved. And it takes Moses listening to God and bringing the people out. Let my people go. And we have the greatest salvation in the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt. God leads his people out, just slaves, conquering in a way, the greatest empire on earth. And then they wander in the wilderness because they cannot help but sin and rebel against God. And yet God in his grace, still 40 years later, leads them into the promised land. He goes before them, conquers peoples stronger, bigger than they are. He gives them the land that he promised Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. Joshua leads them in. They take Much of the land is followed by the downward spiral of judges that God uses even as his people turn from him. They they ask for a king and God gives them Saul who starts with so much promise and yet does not obey God fully and then turns his back on the Lord. And so God finds a man after his own heart, King David, possibly the the pinnacle, the peak of the Old Testament story as, as David unites Israel. Worship of God is happening in the right way, the way that he said it was supposed to. And his son Solomon reigns over a united kingdom that stretches from the Euphrates River down into Egypt. And still, Solomon's son, who you have to think as you read Proverbs that the Proverbs are for Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and yet he rejects his father's wisdom, and the kingdom is divided, ripped away from him. And now we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And eventually, after a lot of bad kings and only a few good ones, hope is spiraling downward. The Assyrians conquer and deport the northern kingdom. And 
Less than 150 years later, the Babylonians come in and deport the southern kingdom and the temple is destroyed. And the people don't possess the land. And we read of those in exile like Daniel and his three friends. We read of Esther. And then we read of the return. Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back and they rebuild Jerusalem, kind of. And they rebuild the temple, kind of. It's not that glorious. They don't rule over themselves. And then Malachi, the prophet, comes as many, many prophets had come before. He promises that that one will come into the temple in the future. And then silence. 400 years The chosen people of God hear nothing from their God. Is he there? Does he care? Is he real? During that time, Alexander the Great spreads Greek culture and language all over. And many Jews turn their backs on the way that God has given to them and adopt Greek culture and language, lifestyle, Then some of Alexander's successors even desecrate the temple, slaughtering a pig on the altar of Yahweh. Which leads to Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah, and the Jews rising up, gaining some kind of self-rule for a hundred years before the cruel Roman Empire comes and stomps their boot on the neck of the Jewish people. And through all of it, no word from God. Nothing for generations and generations. All they know is what their fathers have passed down and soon it's their grandfathers and soon it's their great, 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 great grandfathers. Nothing from God. And so it's into this situation that we place ourselves as we head into the New Testament. As we hear the stories of angels and Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and all of these people. One author wrote this about the 400 silent years leading into the New Testament. Most Jewish people in the first century felt that God was silent, distant, and probably judging them for their sin. It turned into a a, a fatalism. In a, a writing that is included in some Bibles, it's not scripture, it's called Second Baruch, 85, 1 through 3 says this, the Jewish people, our fathers in the old times and older generations had helpers, righteous prophets and holy men. But we were in our land and they helped us when we sinned and they interceded for us with he who created us. But now the righteous ones have died and the prophets are sleeping and we are not in our land. And Zion has been taken from us. And now we do not have anything except the powerful one and his law. Just one example of the feeling of the Jewish people in the time leading up to what we see in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. So when John the Baptist shows up, people probably have forgotten that his birth was announced by angels. 
Some miracles occurred. But when John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness preaching a gospel of repentance and baptizing and hordes of Jews are coming out to hear his preaching and be baptized for repentance, can you understand the excitement of the Jewish people? He looks like Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. He preaches like Elijah. Could it be? Is he a prophet of God? And so what do the religious leaders ask him when they go out to the wilderness? They explicitly say, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Hundreds of years and these old stories, maybe they're coming true. Perhaps God really does keep his promises. And it's in this context that we have the idea of a word that we throw around and maybe don't remember what it means, and that word is Messiah. So what's a Messiah anyway? What is a Messiah? Well, um, time for a Hebrew lesson. This is a really fun one to say. Everybody get their back of their throat ready? All right, ready? Here we go. In Hebrew, it's way more fun to say. Messiah is a cool word, but Mashiach. Oh, yeah, in the back. Mashiach. The Mashiach is one who is an anointed one. And this is an actual Hebrew word that's used for when someone is anointed. And so immediately you should have alarm bells going off and remembering stories in the Old Testament where someone was anointed, almost always with oil. Who was anointed? Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. But most famously and probably most importantly, kings were anointed. And so we have little messiahs. Saul, when he is told, when Samuel is told that Saul is to be king, before the people, Saul is anointed. It is a visualization of the power of God, the Spirit of God, coming upon that person for a job to do, for deliverance, for salvation, for ruling and reigning. Aaron and his sons are anointed to be priests in front of all the people. They're set apart to do the work to mediate between God and man. Elisha specifically is anointed by Elijah to be his successor, which is another idea behind it, the succession. In Psalm 105, we have an often misquoted psalm, but it talks about not touching the anointed ones of God who are the prophets of God. So they were known to be anointed. These were all Mashiachs. They were all Messiahs. The anointed ones symbolizing something important for God. Either ruling, mediating, prophesying with a word from the Lord. It's all so important for us to see this. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 18 to see what this means to be a prophet. Now, we don't see the anointing happening here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we get a prophecy. We get something promised to come in the future. So go ahead and look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, or listen as I read. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. The people of Israel are waiting to go across the Jordan into the promised land. Moses is about to hand over the reins to Joshua, and this is the promise. Deuteronomy 18.15 Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from among you. See the specificity? From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of assembly. And he reminds them how the people of Israel heard God's voice and were terrified and said, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You go on the mountain, you talk to him, and you come back and tell us what he said. Moses says, there's going to be another like me. And God says, I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The Jews of the first century, where is this prophet? I mean, there were lots of prophets afterwards, but, but no one seemed to fulfill this new Moses prophecy. And so when the Jewish leaders go out and talk to John the Baptist, one of the questions is, are you the prophet? And he says, no. He's not the prophet. And so what that tells us is they're still looking. They're longing. They're waiting for someone who will speak God's words to them. The anointed ones that were the priests were constantly before the people of God, representing them before Yahweh in the temple, performing the sacrifices, doing what was necessary so that God's presence could dwell with God's people. And famously, we have David anointed as a boy. Side note, he hasn't become king for 10 years. He's the Messiah, while another Messiah, King Saul, still lives. And that's really important. Remember, David is being pursued by Saul. And David says, who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? Who who am I to touch the Messiah? Even though he himself was also a Messiah. But that respect, that understanding that God anoints those for his service. And so once Saul died, David becomes king. And I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's a really important thing that we learn about Messiahs and the Messiah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has granted David military victory after military victory. He's put down the Philistines and the enemies on all sides. And now there is rest from the enemies. King David, in the meantime, has built himself a, a home in this new capital city of Jerusalem. And he begins to th- consider and think, I'm living in a, in a nice home with cedar. It's permanent. And, and God's living in a tent. And he didn't mean that in a joking way. He meant that God's presence, which hovered over the Ark of the Covenant, was just in a tent, a temporary place that had moved all over. And David begins to think, I want to build God a home, a house. He uses that word, a house for the Lord. And so he begins to talk to the prophet Nathan about this. And the Lord tells Nathan to go and talk to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Yahweh speaks through the prophet Nathan to King David. And he says, you want to build me a house? I'll build you a house. And he doesn't mean he's going to like, new house. He just got a new house. What he's speaking of is the house of David. A dynasty. A succession of kings that would come from David. 
telling him your son and your grandson and your grandsons and your grandsons will sit on the throne. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, there's that word again, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Son of God. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now what we have there is what's called the Davidic covenant. God is making a promise, a solemn vow to David to do this. And there's, there's an intertwining, a mixture of... Obviously, Solomon, the son of David, is the recipient of this. But Solomon doesn't live forever. And so there's both a a near-term fulfillment of Solomon building the temple and a a long-term fulfillment of a son of God on the throne of David. Now, what's the problem? The problem is, when we get to the New Testament, there's not a son of David on a throne. There's a king of sorts, King Herod, king of the Jews. But he's not, he, he's not even mainly Jewish. He's basically an Edomite. So that was not fulfilled. So the Jews were looking. They're looking for a prophet to speak God's word. They're looking for a king to reign on David's throne. And that leads us to Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9. So go to Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9 with me. Isaiah was written, while there was a king on the throne, various great-great-great-grandsons of King David were on the throne, and yet many of them were evil and wicked, and many of them did not keep the covenant of Yahweh. And it is in that context, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, that we read, this is coming from the Lord to King Ahaz. And he said, hear then, O house of David. There it is. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? That's the prologue. You're like, uh-oh, <laughs> that's not good. And yet here is where what seems to be, oh, here comes the Lord. He's going to give judgment. Instead, God in his mercy gives a promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. In Hebrew, that means God with us. This became understood as a promise that a virgin would conceive and there would be a son, a male heir. And his name would be Emmanuel. His name would be God with us. The promise of God's presence with God's people. Two chapters later, in in Isaiah chapter 9, there's an even greater promise. There's so much here that we don't have time for, but at the beginning of chapter 9, there's a promise that even specifically Galilee, the region of Galilee, the lake in the north of Israel, will be blessed. The tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali will be blessed. 
Just a side note, that's where Nazareth is located. That's where Capernaum is located. There's prophecies we can't even get into today. But in verses 6 and 7, I was about to say made famous by Handel's Messiah, but made famous because they're in the Bible, um, first of all. And then, and then repeated in song form in Handel's Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, one name, multiple titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end forever. On the throne of David, And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. These kings that this is spoken of did not do this. They were evil kings. They were wicked. They didn't establish justice and righteousness. And you only see glimpses of it in good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. And so you come out of the Old Testament going, yeah, but what what about the prophet and what about... The king, and what about the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? Where, where is he? Where is he? Because it was very clear he hadn't come yet. None of these guys fulfilled the job description. The virgin birth is promised here. A king is promised to come in the future. This is not an optional doctrine for us. The virgin birth is incredibly important. Albert Muller said, without the virgin birth, salvation history has no savior. And so when we get to the New Testament, we hear this talk of Messiah. However, we don't see that in our Bibles because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. And there's a different word for anointed one. And it's Christos or Christ. And so Christ and Messiah are the same word meaning in two different languages. Mashiach in Hebrew means anointed one. Christos in Greek means anointed one. Okay, there's just two different languages. So Christ is Messiah, Messiah is Christ. And in the, in the New Testament, we see this very, very quickly. Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Jesus Christ is his first name and his title. Jesus the Messiah. So when we sing uh, Jesus Messiah... We're singing Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's all, it's all wrapped up in this. And so when we read in the New Testament signs, we'll even see um, the article before the word, the Christ, the Messiah. And you'll see that throughout the Christmas story. The Christ is promised. Now, when we, we think of this term Christ, it's also related to other titles that, that Jesus has in the New Testament. The Son of God, the Son of Man. Emmanuel is related here. It's really important for us to see these prophecies and these things and as they stretch through the Bible. Now listen, the reason we don't often see these is because I'm cheating. (laughs) We just jumped for all these different books of the Bible. This is why you should always be reading the Bible as some kind of plan so that you get the scope of it. So you see what's happening in the midst of the Psalms. So you see what's happening in the book of Daniel. So you don't get just to skip around and see your favorite stuff, but you see what God is doing in all of it. To do the rooted reading, which we have here at Village, which gets us through the Bible in two years. Do a chronological 
uh, reading of the Bible. You have special Bibles that can put it all together chronologically. Do some kind of Bible reading plan so you begin to put the pieces together and then get a pen or a highlighter and write in your Bible. And then when you go back and read it again and again and again and again, you'll see your own notes. And if you can read your own handwriting, you can go back and look and you can see what you wrote down. This is so important for us. The next question I want to ask is, who needs a Messiah and why? So, who needs a Messiah? What's the point? Well, we've seen that, uh, that the Messiah is a, a prophet, a priest, and a king, the anointed one. We need a prophet to tell us God's word. We need a priest to mediate between us and a holy God. And we need a king who can rule over us in righteousness. Back in... Genesis, back at the beginning. Let me ask you to go there again one more time. Genesis chapter 3. Even at the beginning in Adam and Eve's sinfulness, God even then gives a promise. And this is also a messianic promise. A promise of one who will come. It's, it's, it's vague, right? Because we believe in this thing called progressive revelation that as the Bible was written down, as God revealed himself to generations and generations, more became known. So, so Noah knew this much about God. And Abraham knew this much about God. And David knew this much about God. And then when the scriptures were, write, were written down, we were able to reference the Bible and praise the Lord, we have the scope of the revelation. But way back in Genesis, God is cursing the serpent. And in verse 15, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that word is seed, and her seed. That's rarely ever said. A woman doesn't have seed. A, a man has seed. Okay? The offspring is always the man. That's why in the genealogies, it's the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. Okay? But here in this promise, at the very beginning, God says to the serpent, there will be enmity between your seed and her seed. Now that's interesting. Not his seed, not Adam's. Eve's. He, all of a sudden we've gone from um, impersonal to personal, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to Satan. So even, even here in, in seed form, we have this idea that Satan, the enemy of mankind, is going to strike some kind of blow against the offspring of Eve. But it's going to be a blow to the heel. Damaging, painful, but not fatal. However, the offspring, the seed of the woman, is going to bruise your head. That's a kill shot. Okay, this is the prophecy at the beginning. In Genesis 3, the Jewish people were looking for someone to come from Adam and Eve, which is why Luke goes that far back in his genealogy. That's what he's trying to show. Matthew's trying to show something a little bit different. But we have this promise that someone would come and that's why in chapter 4, when Eve gets pregnant for the first time, she has Cain. She goes, maybe it's him. Maybe this is the boy. This is the one. This is the seed. Nope. No, 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 no. Definitely not him. And so you can see, as the, the, the Bible tells the story, if you remember what happened in Genesis, you see, is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this one? Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. It's never the one. <laughs> it's never the one, and then God is silent. Why do we need a Messiah? Well, the whole point of that is because of sin. 
We need to be rescued. Adam and Eve severed their close, intimate relationship with God, and now death has come. Why do we need a Savior? (laughs) Because we need saving. Because we need rescuing. We need deliverance. We're in trouble. Deep, deep trouble. Because those who rebel against God must be judged by a holy God. So we need a Savior, which the angels say is Christ the Lord. Now, when and where will the Messiah arrive? When and where will the Messiah arrive? Well, certainly, I mean, we don't know this, right? Well, actually, God in his mercy gave some specificity. Now, the timing was never really that clear. Um, There were some timing prophecies, like in Daniel, but that one's really hard to understand. And so the Jews were working on trying to figure those things out, but generally it was future-oriented, right? Someday, someday. Someday. And so that's why this long expected, why they're longing and looking and waiting is this future-oriented but rather vague promise that a Messiah will come. And when the Romans are ruling and the, and the Israelites, the Jews, have no king on the throne, certainly now would be a great time, Lord. Now would be a fantastic time for a Messiah. But there were times before when there had been fantastic times and he had not yet come. This is one reason why in the Christmas story, after 400 silent years, there are so many miraculous, supernatural events. There's angels popping up left and right. You realize if you read the Bible, that's very, very rare. Like very rare. And yet we got Gabriel showing up to multiple people. We got glory to God in the highest. We got angel choirs. We got all kinds of miraculous events happening, including, you know, like a virgin getting pregnant. And I think that the point of all of this is to confirm that that what was once vague is now becoming clear. Look at all of the miracles and the supernatural events. The time is now. The angels tell the shepherds, notice this, unto you is born this day. Right now. Fulfillment has occurred. Well, the most specific prophecy that we see, there are, there are, are several that point to this, but Micah 5.2 is the one that we want to look at. So if you can turn in your Bibles briefly to the end of the Old Testament, Micah 5.2, in the midst of the prophecy, we get some specificity. And the New Testament writers notice this. In fact, when Herod hears of this king of the Jews, he wants to know, hey, get all the religious scholars, get all the smart guys, and ask them, where's the Messiah supposed to come? And they knew where the Messiah was coming from. Bethlehem. They're in Jerusalem talking about this. Bethlehem's five, six miles south, which if you come to Israel with us, November 7th to the 19th in 2020, you can see it for yourself. Sign up, registration's live. Um, you, you see that it's just, it's just, it's almost like a suburb of Jerusalem. It's right there. We know this is where the Messiah is coming. So why weren't you looking? You missed him. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, cute little Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of old, from ancient days. Wow. 
Some of the prophecies are, we don't know what's going on, but that's pretty specific. When is the Messiah coming? Sometime in the future, but where is he coming? Where will he arrive? In Micah 5, 2, it's in Bethlehem. I got a few pictures of Bethlehem really quickly just to show you, give you some context here. There, there's, um, there's Bethlehem and the lands east of it where possibly you might want to take some sheep okay, to graze. Next one. This is snow in Bethlehem. So in case your nativity... So if everyone's ever, ever criticized your nativity for having snow, just tell them it snows in Bethlehem. It's okay. All right? There's a, a beautiful picture of snow in Bethlehem. It's in a mountainous region. And the next picture we have is um, a modern-day shepherd in the fields outside of Bethlehem guiding his sheep in the fields. And the next one is just a helpful picture for us. There's a manger. So I think we're going to be putting together one like that tonight for living... Oh, that's going to be a little bit harder to put that one together. These are real places, folks. This is not fairy tales. This is not Mordor. This is not Narnia. These are real places. Some of you have been to these places. They exist. This is a true story. Another prophecy. In in, uh, Matthew chapter 2, as the angel tells Joseph, hey, get your family out of here. Herod wants to kill the, the baby. Joseph and Mary, they escape to Egypt where there was a, a lot of Jewish people were living in Egypt, so it would have made sense. They, they leave for Egypt, and lo and behold, Hosea 11.1 1 says that Yahweh will get his son out of Egypt. And at the end of that story, when, when, Herod's, when Herod dies, Joseph brings Jesus, the son, back to the land of Israel. And even it's specified even, and even clearer that he goes to Nazareth. Back in the north, in the Galilee, which happens to be in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, that Isaiah promised would be blessed. Well, quickly, because we don't have a lot of time, what will the Messiah do? What will the Messiah do? We've already mentioned a bunch of this, but there are so many passages here. The, the, most, the, the clearest one, I think, is when the angel tells Joseph, what is the name of the child? You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word in a name, Joshua. Okay, so um, Joshua gets translated and comes over into Greek and becomes Jesus. But it's the same exact name, Yeshua, Joshua, okay, which means Yahweh saves. Okay, incredibly appropriate. Um, In Matthew chapter 2, go there, because we're going to camp out a little bit in the Gospels now, so not as much flipping around. But in Matthew... Chapter 2, as the, the, the priests and the scribes are telling Herod that, yeah, the, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, we notice that he will shepherd my people Israel. And we see throughout the prophecies the promise of ruling and shepherding. And they're, they're linked together. And so you think of, of rule, and you might think of ruling and reigning as, as iron fist and you know, just, uh, I'm going to rule you and reign you. But you see it intertwined with this tender pastoral picture of shepherding. And so shepherding and ruling are, are, are linked together, which is interesting because, hey, by the way, who hears about Jesus' birth first? Whoa, shepherds. Where's he born? Bethlehem, the son of David, who was a... Whoa, what a coincidence. It's amazing how it all comes together. And this is must, what it must have been like for, for some of those who followed Yahweh at the time as they began to see these things come together. Wait a second. 
this piece has fallen in, and this piece, and this piece over here, I didn't know this piece existed, and, and the portrait begins to come together. In, in Luke chapter 1, go to Luke chapter 1 really quick, in Luke chapter 1, Mary responds to the news that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant with a baby boy, she is pregnant with a baby boy, and she, she magnifies the Lord, and she speaks of how he is scattering the proud, verse 51. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Notice at the end she says, he, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed, offspring, forever. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Mary says, God, you kept your word. By the way, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. That's a 2,000-year-old promise kept. How many years has it been since Jesus came? About 2,000 years. Can God keep a 2,000-year-old promise? Did God say he's sending Jesus to come and get us? He can be trusted. In Jeremiah 23, you don't have to turn there, but there was a prophecy that the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, He shall reign as king and deal wisely. So often the Israelite kings and the Judahite kings were were reigning, but they were not dealing wisely. They did not execute justice and righteousness in the land. What else would the Messiah do? Well, he would shepherd the people like in Ezekiel 34, where God says, shepherds of Israel, meaning the rulers, you've blown it. You're eating the sheep. That's not good. Stop eating the flock. Take care of the flock. Protect the flock. And then God says, you know what? Forget it. I'll shepherd the flock. And then he said, Yahweh says, I, 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 I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And then he says how he'll do it. And he says he'll do it through David. Well, David's dead. What does he mean? He's referring to the offspring of David. So God will shepherd his people through the Mashiach, through the, the Messiah that's coming. God will achieve the right and just shepherding of his people through a shepherd he will send. What else will the Messiah do? The Jews missed this part, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah will suffer. The Messiah will suffer. Psalm 22, Zechariah 9, 12, and 13, and famously Isaiah 53. Here comes a promised one who will save his people who will give his life. By his wounds, they will be healed. Wounds? What's happening there? Stripes and wounds, and yet victory, salvation, achieved through the suffering of the Messiah who was to come. Paul recognized this in Acts 26 when he's giving his testimony before um, pagan kings. And he's basically telling them, hey, listen, guys, our prophets foretold this long ago. It happened exactly like God said. What else would the Messiah do? Well, he would expand from primarily an Israel-centric mission to the world, to the nations. I ask this frequently. I ask how many of you are Jews, and we have a few hands raised across the room. Praise the Lord that this is what the Messiah will do because he would include the nations, the Gentiles. Isaiah says this in multiple places, but the two best ones to read are in Isaiah 42, where it says, Behold, my servant... 
whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Think of Jesus' baptism. He will bring forth justice to the nations, the Gentiles, the goyim. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands, which is a Jewish way of saying the ends of the earth will wait for his law. In Isaiah 49, which Paul and Barnabas quote on their first missionary journey, you see this in Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Basically saying, I mean, it's, that's too little. That's, that's like chump change. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And once Jesus has come, and once he has died and, and risen, and he sends out his disciples, we see that the, the, the mission now includes the nations, the Gentiles. This Jewish Messiah will reach the Gentile world. But lastly, how does this affect us? That's really fun, and I'm glad I know all those facts now. Yay, for me. <laughs> Notice, as we talk about prophecy, as we talk about what God has promised, what kind of God do we serve? What is God like? He's a promise keeper. He's faithful to his promises. Even when we are faithless to him, God is faithful to his promises. Over and over and over again, Many, many, many times when nobody in the story deserves it, God keeps his promises. When the greatest king of the Old Testament, David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery, murders, arranges for the murder of that woman's husband, lies about it, God sends a prophet to tell him, and the first thing that happens after David realizes he has sinned is Yahweh, through the prophet, says, you will not die. That's forgiveness. That's faithful promises. Even though David absolutely blew it, God keeps his promises. That does not mean there aren't consequences. That baby died. And the rest of David's life was filled with family, family strife, like losing more sons. But God is a promise keeper. When we see the prophecies, it should humble us. We should not have been included in this. There's no Jewish blood that I know of running through my veins and many of your veins. And yet we serve a Jewish Savior. How kind and gracious of God to do that. How else should this affect us? Well, in one of Peter's first sermons after the Holy Spirit comes on the believers... In Acts chapter 3, he says all of these things. God kept his promises. God sent his son. God sent the Christ, he says in that passage. And then he says, what's the response? Repent. So this word is for all of us. <laughs> Repent. Why? Because God loved us so much that he sent his son. Why? So that we wouldn't perish if we believe on him. But you, you must Repent. 
You must recognize your sin, recognize the Savior, and trust in Him rather than yourself for salvation. You can't save you. The Christmas story means nothing if you can save you. If you can save you, Chris, like who cares? That's a cute little baby. That's nice. I mean, watch a, watch a nice movie. We'll go see a nativity or something. But if you can save you, you don't need you don't need Christmas. You don't need a savior. It's born for you this day a savior, and the shepherds could have been like, oh, I'm, all right, cool. Anyone want to go? No, that they ran because they needed a savior. Wow, the savior! He's a baby. It's a little weird, but yeah, the savior is here. So listen carefully as we as we talk about God with us. That's what God promised, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, God, very God, delivers on the promise. And he's with us today. And according to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we have it better than his disciples do because we have the Holy Spirit poured out on us and living in our hearts. Listen, you have it better, Christian, with the Holy Spirit in your hearts than the disciples did walking with Jesus in Galilee. I didn't make that up. Jesus said that. Uh, John, <laughs> some of you may look at me like, I don't believe that. I think it's John 16, which means that God is with us right now in our hearts, shaping us into the image of Jesus, the Messiah. And if God is with us and if God is for us, finish it. Who can be against us? Do you know who that includes? That includes Satan. That includes death. That includes cancer. That includes the other political party. Ugh. That includes Iran and North Korea. Let's notice one last thing about Matthew's gospel. It begins with Emmanuel. It ends with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them what I taught you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The, the Gospel of Matthew begins with Emmanuel. It ends with Emmanuel. And it's in that context that we don't just get warm fuzzies and say, God's with me. Yay. We look and see, Jesus says, I will be with you. Get out of here. Right? Because I'm with you, you can go. We can go. We can send. We can give. We can share. We can proclaim. We can baptize. We can teach. Why? Because God's with us. Jesus came. He's with us as we go to work. He's with us wherever we go. And he will be with us someday in uninterrupted communion. Face to face the promise of revelation 21 and 22 god is with us is a foretaste of us with god forever let's pray thou who wast rich beyond all splendor all for love's sake becamest poor thrones for a manger did surrender Sapphire-paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. 
So Jesus, we thank you that you gave up the riches of heaven for the womb of a teenager in Galilee. For the agony of a cross in Jerusalem. And for the glory of being on mission with you, knowing that you're preparing a place for us. We have nothing to fear because Emmanuel. So Lord, this Christmas season, may this be real and true. By your Holy Spirit, imprint this into our hearts that you keep your promises. All of them. Every single one. Not a word will fall to the ground. But you will fulfill it all. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for sending your Spirit. May we go from here in his power and his strength. In Jesus' name, amen.